0: We're glad you're here with us this morning. Jeremiah said to God, in Jeremiah 15, Your words were found, and I ate them, and your words became to me a joy and the delight of my heart. A joy of the Word of God, the delight of our heart. Several years ago, a, man, a young man asked me, living in the dormitories of an Air Force base, What's in the Bible? What's it about? He wanted a summary of all that was in the Bible, and so I stumbled through telling some stories. But I made a couple of mistakes. One of those was I didn't really know much myself, so I was a little unprepared. It was a little bit bit confusing for him. The second mistake, well, I'll tell you that in a few minutes. If someone were to ask you that, what's what's in the Bible? What's it about? Would you be able to answer? Do you know for yourself, not just to be able to tell someone else, but do you know for yourself, is this word of God the joy to you, the delight of your heart? God said in the Old Testament, Jesus repeated it in the New Testament, man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. There are a lot of words in this book that he's given to us. If we are to live by this word, we need to know... What it says. So, what I'd like to do this morning with the pastoral care team thought would be helpful, uh, Lord willing it will be, is to walk through this whole Bible together this morning. Wow. <laughs> 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 we'll be here until we're finished. No. Um, <laughs> We're going, actually, we're not going to be able to walk through this Bible. We're really going to fly through the Bible to get what's in this Bible. You may not be able to take notes this morning. Um, You may not be able to to take a lot of, of, maybe you can jot down some verses that we talk about. Maybe you just follow along and we go book by book. We're going to be going in order of the books of the Bible, just really just a brief, uh, here's what's in the book, a quote from each book, uh, just to help us understand what is in the Bible. What does it say? What's it about? Now, we can't get into details, obviously, but Lord willing, this will not be tedious. It won't be a full explanation, but Lord willing, it will be helpful, and it will be um, preparing us for this year where uh, we really want to make sure that we are spending time in the Word so that we can take our minds and, and have them renewed, have them transformed, have them uh, sanctified by what our God, our Lord Has said, we begin with Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. He created everything, and when he had finished, he saw it was all very good. But then mankind, Adam and Eve, made in his image, chose rebellion and sin rather than obedience and trust in this God. And God cursed the creation because of man's sin, and man's sin spread to all human beings and brought disease and uh, death to all creatures. Because of sin, but God promised in Genesis 3 there would be an offspring of the woman whose heel would be crushed by the serpent that tempted Eve, but that that offspring would crush or bruise the head of the serpent. So the rest of the Old Testament looks forward to that coming one. In Genesis, God selects a people who will be his people, that the offspring will come through, and his family began with Abraham in Genesis 12, and then in 15, he promised generations of people, blessings, and the land of Canaan. They expanded into Egypt after going down to Egypt during a famine, so then they became enslaved by the Egyptians for 400 years. So in Exodus, God taught humanity who he is when he redeemed his people. The biggest story, of course, is the Exodus, but it's only part of the biggest theme that permeates the book, how we know who the Lord is. Genesis 6 says, I will be your God and you shall know that I am the Lord your God who has brought you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. That's Exodus 6-7. All that he does in Exodus is to show Egypt so that Egypt will know, so that Pharaoh will know, so that Israel will know, so that the world will know that I am Yahweh the Lord. So then he began to show his people how to worship him in Exodus and then into Leviticus. He explained in Leviticus twenty twenty six, you shall be holy to me for I, the Lord, am holy and have separated you from the peoples that you should be mine. God makes his people holy. In Numbers, God continues revealing himself through great acts of mercy and judgment. The people are counted in a census, but then they rebel against God. They, they say no to what God says, and including entering the promised land. And so another census was taken 40 years later because of God's judgment. So Numbers twenty-seven sixty-four says, Among these, there was not one of those listed by Moses and Aaron the priest, who had listed the people in the wilderness of Sinai. For the Lord had said of them, they shall die in the wilderness. That whole generation died because of outright sustained disobedience to God. So the next generation was commanded to enter the land, and so that necessitated a reissuing or a re-explaining of God's law in Deuteronomy as God renews his people. Deuteronomy 1.5 says, Beyond the Jordan, in the land of Moab, Moses undertook to explain this law. And Moses traces the history of Israel up to that point, showing how God had blessed and protected and provided for the people of Israel that he had created and selected and redeemed and sanctified and is now renewing for himself because God loved the people, therefore they needed to love him. So God's been teaching in the law all about himself and about how to have a relationship with him by grace through faith. That, that message continues into the next 12 books of the Old Testament, the history books of Israel. Joshua picks up after Moses dies, and Joshua leads the people into the promised land, and through battles and troubles, God is faithful to his word. So at the end, Joshua 23.3 says, it is the Lord your God, Yahweh your God, who has fought for you. He says, therefore, be very strong to do all that is written in the book of the law of Moses. How can you do that? Verse 11 says, be very careful, therefore, to love the Lord your God. Why? Because verse 14 says, not one word has failed of all the good things that the Lord your God has promised concerning you. Well, after Joshua dies, the next generation comes and goes, and the following one has no idea who the Lord is. They've forgotten all about Him, and so a cycle begins and judges. The people forget about God, and they begin to worship idols. So God brings nations in to discipline His people, and they rule with cruelty until the people cry out to God, please save us, and then He raises a judge for them to deliver them, and then they go right back to forgetting who God is. And the cycle begins and it and, and it keeps going for hundreds of years because, as Judges twenty one twenty-five says, in those days there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Well, during the time of Judges is the book of Ruth. And the book of Ruth is a story of how God uses seemingly insignificant people and circumstances and events to continue the specific line of the Savior, the Messiah that we're still waiting for. Uh, Ruth 4.17 says that Ruth and Boaz have a son named Obed. He was the father of Jesse, the father of David. Yes, the David who would become king, the David who would have the son, the Messiah, who would be king forever. So as time moves forward and the people of Israel grow larger, they come to desire a human king who will rule over them like all the other nations. Rejecting God as their king. So the prophet Samuel anoints Saul, but Saul very quickly turns away from following the Lord, and 1 Samuel 15, 23 says, because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he has also rejected you from being king. So God replaced Saul with David. So we move into 2 Samuel, and David becomes king over all Israel. And in chapter 7, God makes a covenant with David, I'm going to do for you what you could never do for yourself. I'm going to make you into a, a, a lot of promises that are given in this Davidic covenant, but the, the biggest one, that his offspring would be a kingdom with a throne that will be established forever. The sons of David would be kings, but one, one specifically, the same one promised in Genesis 3.15, would be that king who will rule forever over everything and so in 1 Kings, David dies and his son Solomon becomes king, and God says he will give him whatever he asks for, and Solomon asks for wisdom to govern God's people. And because he didn't ask for power or wealth, God gives all of that to him, power and wealth and wisdom. And so 1 Kings 3.28 says the wisdom of God was in him to do justice, but his son Rehoboam Was not wise as Solomon was, and Solomon did not stay faithful to the Lord. So, under King Rehoboam, Solomon's son, Israel was split and divided into two different kingdoms the north, Israel, and the south, Judah. And Jeroboam became the king over the northern part of the land, while Rehoboam remained king over the southern part. But Jeroboam in the north quickly rejected God and led the people of Israel into idolatry so strongly that every single king that came after him was summarized with these words in 1 Kings 15, 26, he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and walked in the way of his father and in his sin, he made Israel to sin. And that follows all the way through 1 Kings and 2 Kings so that in 2 Kings 17, the northern kingdom of Israel falls to Assyria because God's judgment against the unrepentant sins of Israel came. And Assyria, Assyria conquered and then exiled the people in about 722 B.C. But in the southern kingdom, there was a line of succession from David that continued, and some of the kings were evil, but some of the kings loved the Lord. So 2 Kings 23-25 says of King Josiah, Before him there was no king like him who turned to the Lord with all his heart, with all his soul, and with all his might, according to all the law of Moses, nor did any like him arise after him. So because of their continued unfaithfulness to God in 2nd Kings 25 God brought the Babylonians to conquer and exile Judah in about 586 BC. Well, 1st and 2nd Chronicles reproduce much of what Kings said, but from a more hopeful perspective and with a focus more on the southern kingdom. So 1st Chronicles 9 reveals uh, right at the beginning that Judah was taken into exile because of their breach of faith. But then the end summarizes in Second Chronicles 36, verse 15. It explains why all of this happened. It says, The Lord, the God of their fathers, sent persistently to them by his messengers because he had compassion on his people and on his dwelling place. But they kept mocking the messengers of God, despising his words and scoffing at his prophets until the wrath of the Lord rose against his people until there was no remedy. And yet it ends much more positively in looking forward to God's promise that he will bring them back because God fulfills his word. They will be brought back and the Messiah is still to come. And so Ezra begins with the same encouraging words that 2 Chronicles ends with. Ezra 1 -1 says, "...in the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled." The Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that he made a proclamation throughout all his kingdom and also put it in writing. And the proclamation was Israel, go back to your land and build the temple again. Go back and worship your God. And they do in Ezra. And so Ezra talks about the return to the land after the exile. Well, in Nehemiah, the wall of the city of Jerusalem has not been rebuilt yet. So God uses Nehemiah to lead the rebuilding of the wall so that chapter 6, verse 15 says, so the wall was finished on the 25th day of the month Elul in 52 days because of God's work in them. And they read from God's word in chapter 8 and they committed themselves to loving this God, this Lord Yahweh. And this was also after the exile, during the return to the land. Now, for a little bit of background, it was the world power Assyrians who came and wiped out the northern kingdom. The next world power, the Babylonians, took out the Assyrians, but then came and wiped out the southern kingdom. The next world power, the Medes and the Persians, conquered the Babylonians, and they sent the people back into the land. It was under the reign of the Medes and the Persians that Esther happens, the book of Esther. The Israelite Esther becomes queen, and that was by God's sovereign protection of his people because a high-ranking official, Haman, planned a genocide for the people of Israel. But as Esther's uncle said to her in Esther 4.14, who knows whether you have not come to the kingdom for such a time as this. The people were saved, and they celebrated God's deliverance. Those are the 12 books of the history of Israel. That's what's in the books, a broad, a broad flyover of those books. The God's chosen people have, have been uh, selected, and, and they have remained through exile. They have returned back to their land. The next five books of the Old Testament are books of poetry, not English poetry. We won't recognize it in English as, as poetry, but it's Hebrew poetry, and it's beautiful because it's God's word. The book of Job details Job's experience of extreme suffering but not because of anything he had done wrong. After three cycles of his friends accusing him of sin and him replying and then him taking a long discourse and then another young man giving a long discourse, uh, and all of the time people focusing on God's power, God's power, God's power with no any kind of thought about God's goodness and his love, God teaches Job about his power and his goodness. So Job says in Job 42 too, I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. The book of Psalms is the songbook to God and about God in the Bible. It covers genuine human experience before the only true living good and great God. From utter despair and desperation, Psalm 88.6, you have put me in the depths of the pit, in the region's dark and deep Up to the highest joy. Praise the Lord, Psalm 151 says. Praise God in His sanctuary. Praise Him in the mighty heavens. The lowest of lows, the highest of highs. The Psalms cover wisdom. Psalm 1, 1 and 2 says, Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. And on His law he meditates day and night. The Psalms even also include prophecy, like this specific prophecy about Jesus in Psalm twenty-two eighteen. They divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. So much in Psalms, the book of Psalms. Proverbs contains wisdom, where to get it, and why. So, uh, Proverbs one seven says, "The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge." Fools despise wisdom and instruction. Hear, my son, your father's instruction, and forsake not your mother's teaching, for they are a graceful garland for your head and pendants for your neck. Ecclesiastes teaches that apart from God, life is vanity, empty, meaningless. But God makes joy and God makes happiness in life real and sustained. So in Ecclesiastes 12, 13, The end of the matter, all has been heard, fear God and keep his commandments. For this is the whole duty of man. For God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. Song of Solomon celebrates love. Specifically the love between a man and a woman in marriage. They celebrate before the Lord and they celebrate before others and they they seek to grow their commitment and and grow their love, as we hear in in chapter 8, verse 6 Set me as a seal upon your heart, as a seal upon your arm, for love is strong as death. Those are the five books of poetry. The rest of the Old Testament. Or books from prophets. You remember the prophets that God had been sending repeatedly, time after time, uh, sending them, telling them, Israel, you need to repent, you're sinning, you need to repent, you need to believe the Lord, you need to love the Lord. These are some of the prophets. These are the prophets who wrote inspired Scripture. So these prophets wrote throughout the history before, during, and after they were exiled from the land. The first five of the prophets here are known as major prophets. Prophets. And then the next 12 will be known as minor prophets. And they're called that not because of their importance, but because of their length. The first five will be longer. The next 12 will be shorter. But the first major prophet is Isaiah. And Isaiah tells of God's coming fierce wrath against the people because of their sins. If they do not repent... But then he also tells of God's coming restorative grace to Israel. So the people will be judged and exiled. And God's going to judge all the nations of the world one day. But his people will be restored to their land. And the biggest, the most important hope for all people on all continents in all times is the suffering servant who in Isaiah 53.5 was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. And upon him was the chastisement that brought Us peace, and with his wounds, we are healed. That's the hope that we have, even in the middle of the calling of judgment and wrath because of sin. Jeremiah is known as the weeping prophet because as he gives his prophecies before and during the exile with tears, he's just crying out. He proclaims the certainty and the severity of God's coming just judgment, but then his merciful restoration later. God says, Jeremiah, the people are not going to listen to you, but you've got to give them the word anyway. You've got to say what I've told you to say. In chapter 29, verse 10, thus says the Lord, when 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will visit you and I will fulfill to you my promise and bring you back to this place. Remember, that's how Ezra started. He called back to that prophecy of Jeremiah, 70 years. Lamentations laments or mourns over Jerusalem as it's utterly destroyed by the Babylonians because of the unrepentant sin of Israel. Chapter 1, verse 18 acknowledges that it was severe and it was cruel, yet the Lord, Yahweh, is in the right. For I have rebelled against His word, but hear all you peoples and see my suffering. My young women and my young men have gone into captivity, and so the only hope The only hope that they had was Lamentations 3.22, the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness, O Lord. The Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore, I will hope in him. Ezekiel continues prophesying to God's people about their sin and about their need to repent. And the main problem was that they had forgotten Yahweh. They had forgotten their Lord. And so he says that they will know that I am the Lord about 70 times in the book of Ezekiel. You're going to know who I am. You need to know who I am. The name of the Lord will be great in the earth. So God also tells Ezekiel, the people are not going to listen to you, but you've got to give it to them. You've got to give them my word. God says through Ezekiel in chapter 18, verse 32, I have no pleasure in the death of anyone, declares the Lord Yahweh. So turn and live. We get the idea that God in the Old Testament is just this overbearing, wrathful God of, of judgment and, and anger, and, and there is that. But after hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years of calling to them, turn Turn to me and live. I have the words of life. I am the word, the the true and everlasting God. Turn to me. And then Ezekiel speaks of the temple in the latter days. But Daniel is the major prophet who has given more details and descriptions about the latter days than other prophets. And the major thrust of the book of Daniel, whether he's talking about events happening during his day, or events that were about to happen later on after him, or events that still haven't happened, their future for us, whether he was talking about any of those events, the repeated thrust of the book is that God is in control of everything. All people, time, history, future, past, everything. Even the pagan king Nebuchadnezzar proclaims in chapter 4, verse 34. His dominion is an everlasting dominion. And His kingdom endures from generation to generation. And all the inhabitants of the world are accounted as nothing. He does according to His will among those of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. And none can stay His hand or say to Him, What have you done? Our God is powerful and He's in control. That's the end of the major prophets. The minor, shorter prophets are next. They remain. So Hosea proclaims God's love for his people, even during judgment. They will rightly be judged for their sins. They will exil- be exiled and they will suffer. But chapter three, verse five says, afterward, the children of Israel shall return and seek the Lord their God and David their king and they shall come in fear to the Lord and to his goodness in the latter days. So Joel is the next minor prophet, and he describes the day of the Lord for the southern kingdom of Judah. And Joel 1.15 says, Alas, for the day, for the day of the Lord is near, and as destruction from the Almighty it comes. Yet chapter 2 verse 32 says, It shall come to pass that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Amos calls out the northern kingdom Israel. Because there's no true worship in the land. There's no justice in the land. So God is going to judge, but he's not going to destroy his people. Amos 4.12 says, Therefore, thus I will do to you, O Israel, because I will do this to you, prepare to meet your God, O Israel. Obadiah is the next minor prophet. And he's only one of three books in the Old Testament that exclusively talks to a foreign nation, not Israel. It's directed to Edom. Remember Edom was Esau. So this is a nation that was come that derived from Edom, from Esau, and it describes Edom's fall but Israel's restoration. And it's only one chapter long. So it says in verse 10 that because of the violence done to your brother Jacob, shame shall cover you, Edom, and you shall be cut off forever. Well, Jonah is the next prophet, and he also deals exclusively with a different nation, and this time it's Assyria, specifically the capital of Nineveh. And Jonah, as you'll remember, tried to run away from God's command to go to Nineveh and, and preach the word to them, but God convinced him. He came, and he did prophesy, And they repented, and it upset Jonah. It upset him so that he said in chapter 4, verse 2, I knew that you are a gracious God, and merciful, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love, and relenting from disaster. He was mad because of who God is, instead of understanding and worshiping him for that. Well, Micah is the next prophet, and he describes just depths and depravity of sin in the people so that God's righteous judgment is coming. But he says in chapter 6, verse 8, he has told you, oh man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you but to do justice and to love kindness, which is that word chesed, steadfast love, to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God? Yet they could not, they did not, and they would not. Nahum is the final prophet who addresses a different nation. It's the sequel to Jonah. After Jonah came and and he prophesied, he he preached to them and they repented, 100 years later Nahum is sent to them again and and it's the sequel 100 years later. But this time Nahum prophesies to Nineveh and Assyria and there is no repentance, but there will be restoration to Israel. So Nahum 1.7 says, the Lord is good, a stronghold in the day of trouble. He knows those who take refuge in him. But with an overflowing flood, he will make a complete end of the adversaries and will pursue his enemies into darkness. And so the idea is that the wrath is coming, but we can avoid the wrath if we'll turn to him because of his goodness. Habakkuk teaches that the just live by faith in the worthy, sovereign God. And so after questioning God, God, what are you doing? How come you're not, I don't see you working? God says, okay, I'm gonna, here's my plan, I'm gonna judge my people. And then Habakkuk says, I don't like that plan. (laughs) and He's questioning God, he's questioning, eventually, finally, at the end, he submits to Yahweh, the Lord God. And he even says that, even if everything falls apart, if everything goes away, yet I will trust you, God. 319 says, Yahweh, the Lord, is my strength He makes my feet like the deer's. He makes me tread on my high places. Zephaniah is next, and he again warns of God's coming judgment, but then hope later. Speaking of that hope in Zephaniah 3.15, he says, Yahweh, the Lord has taken away the judgments against you. He has cleared away your enemies. The king of Israel, Yahweh himself, is in your midst, and you shall never again fear evil. Such a blessed hope for the future when the Lord makes everything right. There are only three prophets left in the Old Testament. And these final three are the only prophets that we have that are, uh, that are post-exilic in their prophecies. They give their prophecies after the people have returned back to the land from their exile. So Haggai calls for dedication to the Lord while rebuilding his temple. And he traces their disobedience and God's judgment. But, but now, if you will be dedicated to him, chapter 2, verse 19 says, from this day on, I will bless you. Zechariah is the next prophet, and his is called the Apocalypse of the Old Testament. Even though he speaks of the latter days of God's judgment in a series of eight visions, he's told to speak comforting words to the people of God. Like chapter 10, verse 6, I will strengthen the house of Judah, and I will save the house of Joseph. I will bring them back because I have compassion on them, and they shall be as though I had not rejected them, for I am Yahweh their God, and I will answer them. Malachi is the final book of the Old Testament, and he strongly proclaims God's judgment that is coming, but so is the Messiah Malachi tells us that Elijah will come before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes, but it's crucial for us to know. We've got to know in the last book of the Old Testament where people accuse God of being angry and wrathful and full of judgment and and anger and hatred almost. Uh, Well, some people do uh, accuse God of hatred in the Old Testament, but love in the New Testament. Malachi tells us in Malachi 3.6, I, Yahweh, I the Lord, do not change. God is a God of wrath. He's a God of judgment, but he's a God of mercy and grace and goodness. And we turn to him and his goodness now to avoid the wrath and the judgment later. And it's all because of that coming one who is still coming. And so the Old Testament has now been complete, and God ceases to speak for about 400 years as the people anxiously await that Messiah. And so in Matthew, the promised Old Testament Messiah comes. Matthew is all about Jesus of Nazareth as the Old Testament promised Messiah. He's not what they expected. But the gospel of Matthew refers to or quotes Old Testament scriptures over sixty times. This is who we are waiting for. Matthew seven twenty eight says, When Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching, for he was teaching them as one who had authority and not as their scribes. Mark was written to Roman Gentile believers to show that Jesus is the Savior of all mankind. All who will do as Jesus says in Mark 1 15, repent and believe in the gospel. Luke also reveals Jesus as the Savior to anyone who will believe. It's specifically written to a Gentile named Theophilus, but Luke gives more details about Jesus' birth, more insight into his life of teachings and miracles, and provides more proof about his resurrection than the other Gospels. And it's all done, Luke 1.4 says, that you may have certainty concerning the things you've been taught. Well, John waits longer to write his Gospel than the other three. And it's an intentionally unique contribution to show both the deity and the humanity of Jesus, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. So John 20, 31 says, this is all written. I could have written all kinds of stuff, John says. The world wouldn't be able to contain all of the books that would be written. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you and I may have life in his name. So Acts shows us that this was not just some wannabe Messiah guy who came along and claimed for himself the messianic prophecies like so many others have. Uh, the Holy Spirit empowers the believers in Jesus Christ after he's gone to spread the gospel by being witnesses for Jesus, Acts 1.8, in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. It's the history of the early church, the impossible history of the early church if Jesus was not and is not real. So, the, the, the next 21 books of the New Testament are, are written to churches or groups or individuals to explain how that gospel affects you, not just forever, but now in your life. Romans details the gospel that we are not ashamed of because, 1.16, it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek it explains to us our problem of sin a god's solution in jesus applied and guaranteed by the holy spirit in the gospel so that we can now live for him loving others and loving him first and second corinthians were written to correct issues that were going on in corinth first corinthians demonstrates that love plus sound doctrine equals holiness in the church which is what god said he wanted 1 Corinthians one twenty three says, It doesn't matter what the world thinks, we preach Christ crucified. A stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. 2 Corinthians continues direct questions and answers. Paul, what about this? What about that? And he continues to correct and give the truth in love so that the closing words of the triune blessing would be a reality. 2 Corinthians thirteen fourteen: the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Galatians was written to a very troubled church. It was rocked by false teaching because they were falling for it. So the letter is emotional. The letter is firm, but it's also loving. So that chapter 2, verse 16 says, We also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law. Because by works of the law, no one will be justified. The only way for us to be declared righteous before God is to believe in Jesus Christ. It's because of His grace through faith. So Ephesians teaches That it is essential that we know what God says about Jesus and we believe it because that dictates how life is lived in the church when we're together and when we're separated in the world doing our work and and among our families. So because of the foundational, essential teaching of the first three chapters of Ephesians, the believers are called in chapter 4 verse 1, therefore, to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. Philippians echoes that. Our life in Christ is dependent on Christ, all that He is, knowing all that He is and all that He's done. And so while teaching about life in Christ and warning about temptations and false teachings, there are practical commands for us so that the result is, chapter 1, verse 27, only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. Colossians is chock full also. Practical instruction for life in Christ because of the incomparable greatness, the unimaginable power and majesty of Jesus Christ, and the good news of His gospel. Chapter 2, verse 6 says, Therefore, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in Him. And 1st and 2nd Thessalonians were next, and they were written to a church in Thessalonica. And it was an amazing story of, of transformation because of the gospel. They turned from idolatry to Jesus in such a remarkable public way. 1 Thessalonians 1, eight says, Your faith in God has gone forth everywhere, so we, not, we don't need to say anything. They were given teaching on the end and the rapture. And some became so consumed by that, they needed a second letter. He, he urges them to, to continue with what Jesus says until he returns, because we don't know when that's going to come. 2 Thessalonians 3, 5 says, Therefore, may the Lord direct your hearts to the love of God and to the steadfastness of Christ. First and 2 Timothy are written to a young pastor. 1 Timothy 3.14 says, it is written, here's why we have 1 Timothy, chapter 3, verse 14, it's written so that you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. 2 Timothy continues, and they are the last words of the faithful pastor, elder Paul, urging the young pastor in chapter 2, verse 15, to do your best. To present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. Titus was another young pastor, but the emphatic instruction again and again is that sound doctrine, biblical teaching, and preaching always brings obedience to good works. And not just obedience. And not a legalism, not, not a legalism of, of trying to be good to impress everyone else or, or to earn anything from God, but a loving, eager, grateful response of love as good works as worship in life. Jesus came by God's grace, Titus 2.14, to save us, to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Philemon urges forgiveness and restoration and fellowship between believers no matter their situation in life, so much so that the prayer is in verse 6, again, it's only one chapter, verse 6 of Philemon, that the sharing of your faith, that's our fellowship, that the sharing of your faith may become effective for the full knowledge of every good thing that is in us for the sake of Christ. Hebrews was written for Jewish believers in particular, but there are five repeated warnings that they would hold fast to Jesus Christ, the fulfillment of the Old Testament Scriptures. Jesus is the fulfillment. He's the supreme one. He's the living one. He's the one who created us, the one who saved us. And now, chapter 7, verse 25, Jesus always lives to make intercession for us. James repeats the call that because you've believed, since you have the foundation of the truth in Jesus, about Jesus, from his word, live it. <laughs> James one twenty two says, be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. We are to hear it. We need to hear it. But then it's got to matter to us. It's got to change us. So 1 Peter urges those who suffer according to God's will, 4.18, to trust, entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. See, Jesus saved us, but then after we're saved in Jesus, he enables and empowers us to live differently, live as he lived. And so the book of Second Peter urges believers that we would arm ourselves with more knowledge and love to holiness so that we can guard against false teachings and false teachers. Second Peter 3.18 says, grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. To him be the glory, both now and to the day of eternity. Amen. First John is written to you and I. It's written to believers. 5.13 says, so that you may know that you have eternal life assurance is so important. Assurance in who God is and that he's going to bring us home, but don't fool yourselves. Use the evidences that God gives and that he brings about in your life through his word at work in you. Second John reminds us of the original commandment that we love one another. Verse 6 says, "This is love that we walk according to his commandments." Third John urges support for gospel ministry. Verse 8 of 3 John says, we ought to support people like these that we may be fellow workers for the truth. It was desired that the letter of Jude would be all about our common salvation. Some people say Jude wanted to be the one to write Romans. Like he just wanted to just, here's what our salvation is all about. But he says instead, verse 3, that it was necessary for me instead to appeal to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. Guard this, brothers and sisters. Get into this and know it and and learn it and study and, 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 and love this Lord who gave us this word. I don't know if you can believe it, but we have just flown over 65 of the 66 books in the scriptures together. The final one is Revelation and nowhere else do we see such a sustained and elevated view of the glory of our Savior and Lord Jesus Christ as we do in Revelation. In this book, Jesus is the risen, glorified Christ, the Son of God, the Son of Man, the victorious God of everything, the Lord of all. It explains things revealed when it was written, the, things that, the way that things were and the things that will take place after all of it in the still future for us. It still hasn't happened, some of these things. But it closes with this promise near the end in Revelation twenty-two twelve. Behold, Jesus says, I am coming soon, bringing my recompense with me to repay each one for what he has done. I am the alpha and the omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. And verse 20 says, amen, come, Lord Jesus. At the beginning, I told you that I made two mistakes when I was talking to that young man in the dorms about the Bible. My first mistake was I didn't really know much. I was unprepared. It convicted me to say, you know what, I I need to get into this word. I need to know what God has said to me and to you and, and to all people. I need to know it so that I can give the answer to myself and I can teach myself before I try to start teaching other people. The second mistake that I made was that I gave him some information, but I didn't give him Jesus. I missed an opportunity as I was speaking with that young man, and then another young man came and began to listen, and never did they hear about the Word made flesh. I gave them a bunch of facts and some information, and, and just well, that was fun, that was interesting, and then they went away and went on with their lives. This word is given to us so that we will know this Lord, so that we will love this Lord God, so that we will share our Lord Jesus Christ with ourselves, with our own hearts and our minds as we go through the week and the world just comes at our minds and our hearts constantly with what's not true, with what's not What God says with what's against what God says. We're constantly pushed into believing what the world has. our, Our defense is this Word of God to say, No, this is the truth. Here is the truth. The living Word of God is Jesus, and we've got to know Him. So, to know Him, we need to know His Word. So, if we're going to share Jesus with ourselves, if we're going to share Jesus with those around us, we need to know Jesus. And Jesus said in John 5, 39, you search the scriptures, but these are they which testify about me. This is all about Jesus. We want to encourage you, brothers and sisters, to be in the word. That's why we preach the word on Sundays and teach the word. That's why we sing so much of the word of God. That's why we pray the word of God. That's why we want to encourage you in the word of God. We're not worshiping a a book. We're worshiping the God of this book. And the God who became, the the, the book the Word of God who became flesh and dwelt among us and tabernacled with us. We, we, we talk with you about Bible reading plans. Because I don't know about you, but I've got to have a plan. I've got to have a target to aim at and to hit. And, and if I'm not, I'm, just, I'm guaranteed to hit nothing if I'm aiming at nothing. So we have Bible reading plans and and if you want, look at the plan and there's an there's an Old Testament reading and a psalm and a proverb and a New Testament reading, just do the New Testament reading. Or or just do a psalm or proverb in the New Testament or or do the whole thing if you can. But be in the Word. We have a preach the word class coming so that you can read and study and teach yourself, teach your children, teach your wife, disciple your husband. Teach other children, other adults, this Word of God. It's special, it's precious, it's necessary for us. Father God, thank you for the blessing of your Word. God, I confess to you times when I take your Word flippantly. God, when I act like it doesn't matter, when I act like I've... uh, like I act like I've made it matter, Lord, just by reading it and checking a box. God, I confess where I have not studied, I have not shown myself approved. God, I pray that you would forgive me. God, that you would forgive these brothers and sisters of mine where we've fallen short. Father, I pray that you would give us a renewed, steadfast love, a spirit that longs for you, that longs for Jesus. God, that we would be committed to finding out about him, to growing in the knowledge of Jesus and in the grace of Jesus. You've given us so many words, Lord, to to teach us about who you are. Lord, to teach us about who we are so that we know and understand why we need this Savior, Jesus. God, I pray that we would understand, that we would read and hear and apply what you have said. You are the great God. You're the worthy, the only worthy one to receive glory and blessing and honor and power. God, I pray that we would be your people who would bring that to you now. God, one day every knee will bow. Every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to your glory. God, we look forward to that day. But Lord, we pray that you would make us people who do that daily now. Voluntarily, desiring to love, to worship, to grow in love for you. We praise you for Jesus. We praise you for your word. And we thank you in the name of the word of God, the name of the living word of God, Jesus Christ. Amen.